Welcome to Building Vibrant Communities, a podcast for anyone interested in supporting and being part of the future success of our cities and towns. From downtowns and high streets to main streets and small towns, this podcast covers a range of topics, including activating public spaces through placemaking, main street small business success and growth, community building and fundraising, and much, much more. You'll hear from Main Street directors, city officials, property owners, small businesses, designers, architects, artists, entrepreneurs, and urban thinkers about what the future of our cities and towns may hold and together can build vibrant, inclusive places for all. This podcast is a collaboration of team members of Patronicity and Bench Consulting from across the country. This series will feature Barbara Lash in Michigan, Jonathan Burke in Boston, Ibrahim Varachia in Oakland, Mahela Clayton in Michigan, and me, Bridget Anderson, here in Indiana. Thanks for joining us. Hello, I am Bridget Anderson, and I'm joined by my colleague, Jonathan Burke, aka Burke, who was recently quoted in the New York Times. Hey, Jonathan, how are you doing? Appreciate that. 15 minutes of, of claim to fame. How are you? <laughs> That's right. You got a humble brag. Um, well, I'm excited about today's Building Vibrant Communities podcast because our special guest is Zach Benedict. He's a principal architect at MKN Architecture and Design out of Fort Wade, Indiana. His focus is on community connection to place and includes work creating lifelong communities. And I got to hear Zach speak at a conference and I was so impressed with his insights about quality of life and his in-depth knowledge about why placemaking is so important to design. Hi, Zach. Thanks for joining us. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So let's dive in. Um, you've shared some really interesting data that I love and I, uh, try to give you, give you credit when possible, but some of those data points are really interesting, like how you can predict, um, your life expectancy by your zip code. So can you share more about why, where we live matters? Sure. I, the, the zip code data is pretty prevalent now. 10 years ago, I couldn't say that. Um, but what it does do, I think, is it shows um a dashboard of of how our the ways in which we've built our communities has impacted the quality of life so um when you look at zip code analysis across data points like longevity or life expectancy you can have two adjoining zip codes and the life expectancy difference between those two can be upwards of 20 to 25 years That's so crazy. To try to understand that that isn't a coincidence and it might very well have everything to do with the, the way in which we're building, operating, and managing uh, our communities uh, is something that I think, especially as an architect, you have to start taking some responsibility for. Um, so for us, that has become a critical component to how we think about uh, not only our work, but the impact it, it, can, it can have on people. Um, th- what we've really done, I think, and what the zip code data does a good job of articulating um, is the fact that these monocultures of opportunity, um, which is a really jargonish way of saying, um, we have gotten in the habit now of developing communities of very, very uh, similar types of individuals, everything from household income to household typology to even uh, daily schedule, you know, eight to 4.30, I'm coming, I'm going, I arrive, I leave at the same time. Um, and those then evolve into a sense of opportunity and amenities 
that are very different from zip code to zip code. Um, and it's, it's that um, sense of access to goods, services, amenities, clinical care, you name it, um, that really has then, I think, resulted in these large discrepancies of not only longevity, but um, uh, 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 occurrence of chronic disease in populations. Yeah. Great. So I think one of the things that we think about as placemakers and people who are looking to find opportunities for communities to address those issues and and support them is that design and how you create spaces has a big uh, impact on that uh, quality of life. Um, What are some factors in design that you think can help promote or improve quality of life? Well, to me, there's a difference between quality of life and longevity. So the zip code thing clearly shows its impact on longevity. Not necessarily um, um, a causal relationship with quality of life. Um, Just because you live longer doesn't mean you're happier. Right. Uh, So you kind of have to balance those. That's a a, dangerous, confusing causation and correlation. Um, For me though, when we talk about quality of life uh, as a designer, you're thinking about two things. One is, understanding and reconciling in your mind the social determinants of health. So um, less than 40% of those determinants have anything to do with your genetic makeup or your access to clinical care. 60%, sometimes uh, some research will say closer to 70%, has everything to do with the variables that define your everyday routine. So uh, the community in which you live, your behavior, your job, your access to goods and services, things that are imposed upon you by the built environment. Um, so as a designer who's obsessed with community health and well-being, you have to start to take some responsibility that uh, uh, the physical environment is not only playing a large role, but in some ways largely dictating these outcomes. Um, on the flip side of that, the second part I think you have to be really concerned with is embracing the idea that um, maybe one of the most important things that matter is uh, reciprocity. So this idea that people um, need to feel like they're adding value to the world around them uh, on their own terms. And that sense of independence and choice is something that when designers are thoughtless, I think we can take away. So I argue that if we're being thoughtful, there's no reason we can't bring it back. Um, But those two things, which are are on opposite ends of a spectrum of complexity, uh, I think are the two real things that people that bear the responsibility of, of planning and operating uh, community development discussions really need to be cognizant of. So Zach, I'm going to chime in really quick. So part of the reason why about eight years ago I got into this work was after reading uh, Walkable City by Jeff Speck. And yeah. it's sort of my first foray into realizing our relationships with the built environment. I'm not a trained architect. I'm a trained, attor- I'm a trained attorney, which is sort of the opposite of what you want in the space. <laughs> Um, and especially, you know, we're getting into the conversation today around coming out of this pandemic and our relationship with density, yeah. walkability in cities and that sort of thing. Um, where do you see, I mean, I know part of the reason why I got into this world is, is supporting growing cities to be supportive of that healthy, walkable urban lifestyle um, and access to all those amenities within a close, hopefully 10, 15 minute walk or bike ride of your home. Um, what do you see? And this is really early, so it's sort of, uh, forecasting way down the road. What do you see as sort of some of the pushback um, coming out of this pandemic to density, um, seeing sort of the higher instances of the disease in cities? 
but also some of the sort of responses to folks who say, I got to get out of the city because I'm going to get sick again over in the next pandemic and that sort of thing. Well, it's interesting. Um, that was the birth of suburbia in the first place was um, to escape the dangers to your personal health that the city yeah. were imposing. Um, you know, I think the whole Garden City movement was to get out of the city because uh, it was hard on your health. Unsanitary um, and sewer systems. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the birth of uh, zoning as we know it. Um, so it's an interesting problem to have. And I've had the last three weeks locked in my house to think about. <laughs> um, in in the umbrella of of uh, health and longevity, it's even more interesting to me because um, what the research is. I think clearly shown is um, if you try to decide what factors really can increase your longevity or reduce your chances of premature death, um, diet, exercise, medicine, all these are on the list of the top 10, but the top two uh, are um, uh, social integration and strong relationships. So like the, the two pillars of social capital. Um, couple that with the facts and complexity of you know, all that we know about the shifting demographics of aging populations and monocultures and all that fun stuff. Um, now lay on top of that, the fact that we're not sure if we want to hang out with each other. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a really interesting time because I, it felt like from at least an urban design standpoint, we were just getting over the hurdle of uh, finally coming to grips with the fact that Jane Jacobs actually knew what she was talking about. Uh, and now we're faced with a pandemic that says, you know, but being close to each other is dangerous. I think it is, it is an ironic time to be going through this um, and something that I don't yet know how it's going to play out because um, there's got to be a balance between um, safety and, and uh, uh, camaraderie. And, and that's where this pandemic has put us as urbanists trying to understand the difference. I, I do a lot of work for public libraries um, who over the last 10 years have really worked hard to redefine their role in a community as this third place and social hub um, that was really adding value. And now they're having to have really tough discussions to say, well, when everybody does finally come back to the building, are, are we operating under a new set of rules? And, and it's really unclear right now if, if they actually are. Um, so it, I, I, I don't know. And I am, I am, and losing sleep currently over just kind of what that means, especially in the kind of the small, medium-sized communities um, who don't have a lot of options or choices in social interaction. You know, there, there might be three or four of those third places in a community of the size of you know 10,000 people. Um, what happens when they start to, to clam up and, and feel nervous about offering that platform to people? It, it, it could not only be detrimental to the community, but from a clinical standpoint, then you start reducing the top two reasons that I can increase your longevity just went off the board. Um, and, and that's, that's really interesting. And the, the third part is um, for all the people that were arguing that technology was keeping us more connected than ever. Um, if you just look right now about how many people are pining, how lonely they are uh, stuck in their home, even though we have, you know, every, technological platform in the world to talk to one another, it's just not the same. Um, and I think this has been a really good litmus test to teach people that it, that it's not, there's no replacement uh, for face-to-face -face contact. Yeah, that's, that's sort of, you started touching on it, but that's sort of leads me into my next question, which, and it's something that I've 
thought about a lot. I've had those sleepless nights about, um, I've had those conversations with friends who are in this industry too, who are sort of panicked as to what happens next. What do you think this sort of opportunity for the entire world to pause at the same time um, for probably weeks and months on end, on end can kind of show people and expose people and allow people to kind of rethink the way they interact with their built environment? Do you think, do you think you see things that are kind of surfacing to the top or bubbling up now that may be able to sort of be harnessed as sort of a way to change habits and change bad habits of the past? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, I think people are, uh, disturbances like this are relative. Yep. Um, you know, it, it, it means something totally different, um, to first world, uh, communities than it would a third world uh, community. But if, uh, it's been interesting, you know, humans by nature aren't rational creatures. Uh, so, uh, like I, my house is on a rails to trails, you know, pathway that goes miles in both directions. And I drive my bike up and down it. And, you know, every now and then you'll run into a dozen people or so on a four mile bike ride. The day after we had a stay at home order in my state, I bet there was a hundred people on the trail. Yeah. Um, and I don't think because they wanted to get out of their house as much as they couldn't come to the grips with the fact that people were telling them they had to stay home. Um, and the, the trail was one avenue that didn't require them to get in the car and go to their grocery store. Um, we, that I think has been an interesting thing for us. My, um, my father always had this wonderful phrase when I was a child that whenever we made a complaint, he would say, it's all relative. It's better than being chopped up by a chainsaw. And, you know, that's kind of hard logic to argue with. You know, not much you can say. Um, and I've heard people, you know, my mentor said the other day, uh, my entire professional career has been me surrounded by people that complain that they don't have enough uh, time to spend with their family or to not work. And here we are being told we have to spend time with our family and all people do is complain. Um, it, it, I think it will reset priorities. I think it'll teach businesses that um, your geographic proximity has nothing to do with your, your reach. I mean, um, the days of having to meet someone in person for marketing uh, is, is over. Um, but from a community standpoint, I think what it's taught us is that technology will never be able to replace um, the, the cognitive effect we have uh, of being around one another physically. Um, and my hope is that when these things start to flirt with being back to normal, um, we'll start to appreciate that more. Um, but I, yeah. you know, we'll see. Yeah, no, I that actually leads perfectly to my next question because um, I'm like maybe uh, stubbornly naive and hopeful that this challenge will become an opportunity. I'm just like this annoying optimist. And in that, I've actually seen sort of a surge in localism where people are more likely to support, you know, that that nice guy gym at their local pizza place than they are, you know, get a curbside delivery from Olive Garden. Um, no judgment. I mean, I love their breadsticks. Um, but that actually also leads me to the question, you know, what is, what are the things that it attaches to communities? And now, now we're sort of stuck in them. So, um, you talk actually a lot in your work about community attachment, especially for those who might be disenfranchised. So, um, could you share what you, how you would rethink or re-engage how we can connect with those who are disenfranchised or, or isolated during the current well, current situation, and then also how do we use that um, that opportunity moving forward? It, the attachment discussion is interesting. So the, and I was 
probably been over a decade now, the Knight Foundation came out with a fairly substantial soul of a community report that, that tried to qualify uh, attachment to be uh, kind of a triangulation of three things. There was uh, social offerings, openness, and aesthetics. So stuff to do, um, being inclusive of who can do it, and being surrounded by beautiful things. And that was kind of, you know, not rocket science by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think more from a sociological standpoint, our um, perception of, of the world around us, how attached we feel uh, to our context, um, has to do with our ability to add some perceived value um, in, in kind of three realms of space, uh, uh, home, work, and some social hub that blurs the boundaries away from those two things. Um, and the second you start to take any of those away, my sense of attachment or belonging to a space starts to erode. It doesn't disappear you know, entirely, but uh, it starts to chip away at it uh, to the point that um, if you find yourself 72 years old, isolated in a suburban home with the inability to drive, there's not much I can do to superimpose a sense of attachment uh, you know, on your psyche. Um, so this idea of empowering people to give them a sense of, uh, choice and value, I think is really the key challenge. And it's not a small task by any of the stretch of the imagination, but what's interesting to me is, um, kind of how we as social creatures define that value. So there's a really interesting research study by, uh, I think it was IU Bloomington that looked at. Hoosiers 65 and older and separated them out into two cohorts. They, there was people that self-identified as really engaged in their community and people that admitted they had very little engagement in their community, which is not an easy thing to admit to a, you know, a stranger calling you on the phone. Um, and they kind of separated those two cohorts and asked big questions like, um, are you satisfied with your life? Uh, and the, the difference between those willing to say yes was like 40% gap. Um, but they didn't measure how often they left the house, how many volunteer activities. They didn't, they didn't quantify their engagement. It was based on how they, they perceive their own engagement, which is a really powerful thing to think about is um, it, until I feel like I'm engaged, and that's between me and myself, um, it dramatically shifts my perception of my quality of life, my happiness, and my attachment to the world around me. And that's what I think we need to be more cognizant of. I think by and large, the design community has a bad habit of coming into an underserved area and telling it what it needs to fix itself. Um, and that's the last thing anybody wants, deserves, or I think frankly needs. Um, nobody needs fixed. They need empowered and being and, and given a platform that they can on their own terms, engage the world around them and provide value. Um, and that's what I think we as design professionals need to get better at. And maybe this is kind of a moment to wake up and realize that um, that has consequences that we, we can't stop ignoring. Yeah, I think um, it's been interesting to see people's response. My grandmother, who I love very much, uh, lives across the street from my uncle, a block and halfway from my mom, and passively aggr aggressively when I ask her how things are going, she said, fine, nobody talks to me anyway. And so <laughs> that perception, I think, is yeah. different than the reality. But I do find that um, that those... But it says a lot. It says so much, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And um, so the changing ability, the ability for communities um, to identify that and to support folks, I mean, it obviously has its challenges, but um, I would love to get a sense of something that's inspiring you that's happening um, right now. I know it's a challenging time and we all kind of need good news, but as an architect, are you seeing some trends or uh, responses that I think um, encourage you about the current environment? Specifically to the pandemic? To the pandemic or just kind of where we are and how far we may or may not have come in architecture and design, especially as it relates to people in place. Um, I may I have asked you on a bad day too, because- No, no. Well, it's, it's, it's been interesting. Like all my answers to these questions probably would have been different three weeks ago. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and that, questions would have been different too. So. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, so it's, it is kind of a, um, it's almost turned it into like a puberty phase of your career where you're just not sure about anything anymore and you don't really know where this is all headed. Um, what inspires me? I, I am a, a habitual lover of public libraries, um, in, in, especially in the context of community health. Um, not necessarily for the building as a typology, but as librarians, as a unique species of human being. Uh, and I, I really think um, they have a wonderful sense of um, operating as one of the last civic guardians that we've allowed us to have. Um, you know, there's a lot of things now teachers don't feel comfortable saying to students, um, but librarians are still out there telling kids it's time to wear deodorant. You know, they're saying things that no one else is allowed to say anymore. And I, I find that really refreshing that they're one of the last um, surviving operators of the third place and they're doing it really, really well. Um, they just don't use that language that I think designers probably would, would give them. Um, so I, and because I do a lot of work with them, I find them extremely inspiring. Um, the other one that I've tried to work through over the last decade or so, but now think because of the last few weeks that this might actually start to happen is for a long time, our firm has argued that development incentives need to be tied to, um, our economic, uh, improvements ability to increase um, health and well-being across all ages and abilities, not strictly being satisfied with uh, inflated numbers for job growth and all the things we hand out tax credits and incentives and abatements for. Um, and the argument had been traditionally that um, communities need to take more control and not only understanding what hurdles they're facing and future demographic shifts and changes, um, but also being a little more heavy-handed and trying to understand how can we invest in ourselves to safeguard against these shifts? Um, and we, we had always phrased that conversation as a community health concern. So for example, um, between 2005 and 2040, Indiana's population grows by 15%, but during that same time, our 65 and older population grows by 90%. So if you're given tax uh, abatements or development incentives, that might be something worthy to be part of the discussion is, is this development actually going to be age friendly? And if not, that's fine. But if you want some community investment, then we want that to be part of the equation. If we're going to invest in ourselves, we want to acknowledge who we're investing it for. And this is what we look like in the next 50 years. Um, and that was one of those things that always was the response was, oh, that's interesting, but that sounds complicated. So we won't do it. 
Um, the last three weeks weeks might change that in that we, I think, need to start now thinking if the community is going to invest in this, we, we need some more sophisticated uh, performance indicators other than just counting jobs or um, increased wages. There's more to it than that. Um, and I, my hope is that um, this unfortunate set of realities might reintroduce that conversation to a lot of communities. Yeah, that's great. I think that the two things that you pointed out that are really critical, and it's a lot of the work we do is about getting that community investment and buy-in. And so um, you did mention about getting that input, that that support. What are some things you've seen that um, you really like in uh, as an architect being able to collaborate with communities? What are some best practices you've seen in engaging them to feel like a part of the process? I think the biggest thing architects, um, which I am one, and urban planners, which I am not, uh, can, can, can do, especially when they're helping communities, is try to empower them with an understanding um, of ideas that I think too often get misplaced or overlooked. So by that, I mean, um, we need to do a better job as a profession in educating people on the, what we think is important. Um, it's too often, I think you see um, good work being done. It gets developed into a plan of some sort that ideally then gets put into a publication that sits on a shelf and collects dust. Um, and there's not enough energy in educating, empowering stewards and executors of those plans. Um, and, and that's where I think uh, the profession in general could be better at. And there are some shining examples of um, but like when we go into a community, the first thing I always say is, um, you know, I, I didn't, my firm doesn't live and die by trying to create as many plans as humanly possible. It's not why we're in business. Um, my job is by the end of this, that you don't need me. And I want to make sure by the time I leave, you don't feel like you need me here. Um, and the example I, I always give is, um, a couple of years ago, we did, a. uh, some work in a community in central Indiana that was funded by the Pfizer foundation to talk about communities of all ages and abilities. And there's so much, you know, academically that's part of that discussion. You know, there's all this stuff going on, all these metrics, and it would just be mind numbingly boring to the average person. So we thought long and hard about how we're going to explain this to somebody. And I came up with this really stupid thing where we did, we, we made a big deal about this toilet paper paradox where um, the average Hoosier is about six miles away from toilet paper. Um, and in most cases, there's only one retailer that you can buy it from in most communities. Um, and that's how we kind of explained this idea that um, if you're serious about being livable, but you can't drive and you're six miles away from toilet paper, that's a problem. Um, and it might sound insignificant until it's your problem. Uh, and, we, and we kind of explained it in that context and then dove deeper. Um, and it, I think it was one of those things that just the people that participated in the shred really understood. And then you fast forward about six months later and somebody had heard about it. I don't know, Pfizer Foundation or something. And uh, a, a journalist came to interview me about the work. And we were talking about it. And I said, well, you, know, you need to go to this community and talk to them. I, that, that's more interesting than what I have to say. So he went to this community. It's only a town of maybe 8,000 people. He stopped three unrelated people on the street to ask what they thought about 
their community, and all three of them lectured him about toilet paper <laughs> separately, unrelated, had nothing to do. And he, you know, he called me back on his way home. He's like, "You're not going to believe, you know, what happened to me." And it was like the proudest professional moment of my life because we had equipped them with the language where they could explain it as well. And I sincerely thought, fantastic. They don't need us. Like they'll figure that out because they at least understand the priorities and what to be sensitive about. Um, and, and that's what I think the, the profession needs to be more, uh, they, they need to get better at is trying to understand how to educate people uh, and empower them to take control back of, of their own community. Well, having witnessed you at the conference share that data point and everyone's head like kind of stood up or like they looked up and they looked around and like were furiously writing down. I think that says a lot about the work you do. And um, it's the inspiring thing for me is to know that those people um, from that community took something away and um, that ultimately our hope um, is that we can help communities identify those assets, connect to the information to tell stories about their place and their community. Thanks for tuning in to Building Vibrant Communities. We hope you were inspired to hear from our guests and learn more about how together we are shaping communities now and in the future. If you or someone you know should be featured on our podcast, let us know. You can tweet us at patronicity or email us at info at Stay safe and be inspired.